0: You're listening to Working Classics. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season, we're revisiting some of my favorite episodes from my time hosting the show. Uh, for this episode, we're looking back at my conversation with Lee Clayton, who uh, is the Director of Animal Health at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. We talked to a lot of really fascinating people in Baltimore about the work that they do there in the city. But uh, this one is special to me because as, as regular listeners of the show know, I love animals, uh, sometimes even love the strangest animals most of all, and I love hearing about uh, what it takes to care for them.
2: Ooh, like that. That's called a spotted guard. I like spotted guards. I love spotted gar.
0: You're hearing the sounds of the National Aquarium in Baltimore, one of my favorite places that we visited in the course of recording our season there. This is Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on the show, we're taking a trip to Baltimore to chat with some of its residents about the various ways they make a living there. We're hoping to learn a little about the ways that Baltimore shapes their work and about the ways they're shaping Baltimore by working.
2: Against the glass and looks
0: like right there. When we first announced we were heading to Maryland for this series, many of our listeners wrote in to suggest that we visit the National Aquarium, one of Baltimore's uh, greatest highlights, and we were happy to oblige. It's a massive facility with thousands of organisms on display, from sea turtles to sharks to dolphins. Unsurprisingly, keeping all those undersea animals healthy is a massive undertaking. To better understand how they pull it off, we spoke to Lee Clayton, the aquarium's director of animal health. Clayton explains how you tell when a fish is sick and leads us through the process of diagnosis and treatment. She also shares a particularly memorable surgery story and offers some practical tips for those who are looking to keep the fish in their home aquariums healthy. And of course, she speaks to the National Aquarium's relationship with Baltimore more generally and its connection to the Chesapeake Bay. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Clayton tells us about working with my favorite animal, the octopus. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from Working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash plus. What is your name and what do you do?
2: My name's Lee Clayton, and I'm the director of animal health and welfare here at National Aquarium.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? How many charges do you have? How many animals are you looking after?
2: Right, yeah, the veterinary department here helps care for all of our animals, and including our invertebrates, that's about 15,000. It's a lot of It's a lot of animals, animals of about 800 different species.
0: I assume that the training you did can't have prepared you to work with every single one of those animals. I mean, was a lot of the learning on the job?
2: Yeah, yes. And this is really true for many veterinarians, though. You are able to take facts you know and approaches you know from one species and then apply it to similar species. So it's a really interesting combination of being able to get into the details, but then also stay more broad and kind of take what you know in a general approach and apply it in new and unique ways. Because one of the cool things about being an animal here on Earth is that there's a lot of continuity and similarities between species. Mm
0: -hmm. Were there any really prominent differences that stood out when you started focusing more on marine Yeah.
2: I do remember like when I was a vet student being like, oh, my God, you can do surgery on a fish. (laughs) And and so I can relate when we have visitors come through. They can you can take a fish out of water, you know, and it's like you know you have to kind of reset because, of course, to us, it's like, well, yeah. Um, And so you just have to remind yourself that it is kind of weird, you know, that, yes, we can take a fish out of water and we're careful to keep the gills moist. And that's actually how we anesthetize them Mm. and we keep their skin moist but you can take a fish out of water and do surgery on it and return it and they can do great. Uh, And actually one of my favorite little cases is uh, we had an intern who was able to go in and take a cyst, a really large cyst off the liver of a fish that was part of a group that's in the black tip reef exhibit mm-hmm. and it's there now and it's getting bigger and it's still part the of fish, the not school. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> the sister is gone. Um, and so every time I go look at that exhibit, I think of, you know, our trainee yeah. and her ability to do this and our ability to help her do it. And I do think it's something that over time would have been problematic for this animal. Mm-hmm. And we were able to, you know, kind of fix it. And cool. there's the animal. <laughs> this is
0: probably a dumb question, but, How do you know when a fish is sick?
2: Yeah, right? Great question. Same way we know when other animals are sick. We often are looking for changes in their behavior and Mm -hmm. changes in how they look. So when a fish isn't feeling well, it often will change color a little bit. It may be Mm -hmm. darker or lighter than usual. Then if it's a schooling fish, rather than keeping up with the rest of the school, it's often lagging behind Mm -hmm. in a very consistent way. Uh, It may not be holding its fins in the right location, Mm -hmm. the right orientation. They'll often clamp their fins in tight against their body. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they can look as if they're in pain. And -hmm. that's real hard to appreciate in a fish, but they'll often just kind of sit there and they're not really paying as much attention to the external environment. Mm -hmm. They're not looking around as much. They're not... Um, tracking movements as much. They're sort of turned inward. So it actually looks very similar to if you or I were sick or if our dogs weren't feeling well. You know, they're just not up and active as much.
0: Do those observations come to you from other, would, would the right word here be keepers uh, at yeah. the facility or, or is it your, you and your team who are making the rounds, keeping an eye on animals?
2: We do both, but it's really for the staff that take care of the animals daily. That's part of what they are really experts in mm-hmm. is knowing how the animals under their care go about their typical day mm-hmm. and if there's a variation from that then they evaluate that variation and will be thinking is this normal so for instance is the turtle basking more because she's getting ready to lay eggs mm-hmm. or is the turtle basking more because she's not feeling well mm-hmm. Um, And so that's their area of expertise. And quite, quite often we'll come together and talk about it as a group. Um, And if we're not sure, because for some animals, you're like, well, you know, she lays eggs at this time every year, and we're going to be like, well, she's probably laying eggs. Um, If it's a different time of year, then we would for that same animal probably do something like bring her over to our hospital area, do some blood work, do a complete physical exam, get x-rays, do an ultrasound much sooner.
0: So how do you work from those initial observations then to an actual diagnosis and a
2: treatment plan? For a lot of us who work in zoos and aquariums, and even vets working with pets, your exam really starts the minute you see the animal. Mm -hmm. You know, you're evaluating and sort of looking at that picture compared to a mental image of what the animal should be looking like. Mm -hmm. Then we'll often do a hands-on exam, and then we'll often do diagnostics.
0: palpitate at scales or something? Yes, you palpate.
2: Exactly. You get a heart rate. You listen to the heart. You listen for the gut sounds, um, depending on what species you're working with. Mm -hmm. You know, our set panel of diagnostics is really blood work x-ray ultrasound. Mm -hmm.
0: How do you x-ray a fish, though?
2: (laughs) Yep, we x-ray them the same way we do any animal. Uh, There's an x-ray plate, Uh and there's an x-ray unit that sends the x-rays. We're all digital now, so the plate is electronic, and then process that image, and it comes up on a computer. Uh, But you can take the fish out of water. For most fish, we actually have to sedate them a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes them more calm.
0: And and you say you do that through the gills?
2: Yeah, so we put their um, anesthetic into the water. That they're in and it crosses the gills into the bloodstream and into the brain and they'll, you know, sort of go to sleep. We lift them out of the water and take our x-rays and put them back in.
0: Presumably you've put them into a separate tank or something Mm -hmm. first so that it's not
2: putting other fish to sleep. Exactly. We, uh, if we have a concern about a fish, we have transport containers and uh, the aquarist takes water from the the main area typically. Mm. With fish, it's very, very important that your water is consistent Uh, changes in the pH of the water, the temperature, those sorts of things can really uh, upset the fish's physiology and hurt them. Mm -hmm. So we're very careful to match the water and make sure it's the same water when we Mm -hmm. work with them. But yeah, and uh, most fish handle that amazingly well. You know, I think you might think like, oh, it would be so stressful and... The majority of our animals, if they're feeling okay, it's pretty common that like the aquarist is calling us that afternoon. Well, he ate this afternoon. Mm. And so I think for many animals, they roll with it just as we do. Mm. You know, like we don't go to the doctor, most of us. And then we're like, oh, my God, that was so traumatic. I can't eat for four (laughs) days. And for our animals, it's very, very similar. It's just something that happens. And they're like, okay, well, that happened. And here's my food. (laughs)
0: Are there any animals that are especially difficult to work with?
2: You know, humans are always, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's always the, the answer. Uh, humans tend to be the most complex to work sure. out the social relationships and the negotiations and all of that. Um, but here in the facility? But here in, yeah, but here, uh, not our humans, you know, our people sure, are sure. great. Sure, sure, your people are great. <laughs> <laughs> um, for our animals... I think our most challenging ones are the animals that are in our largest habitats. Some of them we train to sort of come to us and participate in going into a stretcher or some other device so we can get them out. Mm. Um, Others, you know, that can be our limiting factor is we just can't get our hands on them readily. Mm
0: -hmm. Any specific ones that tend to be more difficult?
2: Schooling fish. Fast swimming schooling fish are probably the hardest to work with as individuals. Because Um, their
0: whole evolutionary process is about evading capture. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yep, absolutely.
0: How do you relate to an animal as you're going through this diagnostic process? Do you anthropomorphize it at all? Or or is it, are you really just thinking in kind of raw bioscientific terms (laughs) about it?
2: (laughs) You know, honestly, I think we do both. We certainly talk about the animal's emotional states, and that is really important to us as we move through how we're going to handle animals. We're working with animals over years. We're working with animals often as they age and, and go through sort of into their geriatric years. And so it's very similar to working with a pet where you start to, you know, what's in the best interest of this animal? Does it have an issue that I can make better? Or does it have a problem that's a chronic disease? And so we're looking at maybe doing less with it, but we want to go into a discussion of its quality of life. How is this How is this animal experiencing its day-to-day? Mm-hmm. And so we do have to make assumptions, um, but we do those based on monitoring behavior very carefully and being very familiar with what normal looks like for those animals. When you're
0: talking about the emotional state of an, of an animal in your care, is there ever any risk that that kind of anthropomorphic possibly necessary but mm-hmm. but still anthropomorphic relationship to an animal makes it harder to see the specificity of its own experience of its own
2: yeah animality. i think i think it's possible and i think one of the things that we work i think it's possible whenever you are a person interacting with anything you know your child a spouse your dog your cat an animal here um trying to keep in mind Am I doing this for the animal or am I doing this for myself? Am I doing this really for my child or I'm doing this because it's easiest for me and it's what I want to do? You know, being aware of what you bring to the table, you can never fully escape from yourself. You you know, you are who you are, and you're bringing your experiences and expectations and fears and all the rest of it to the table with all of your interactions. So, absolutely, is there risk of that for a veterinarian or a husbandry staff member here interacting with our animals? Sure, there is because there is that, that's you know, the side effect of being a person. And so we have systems in place to try to make sure that we're balancing that.
0: Do you get emotionally invested in the animals? Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's very hard to kind of, for me at least, it's hard for me to feel as if I'm bringing my best without having a little bit of that. Mm. Um, And so that's also, you know, sometimes there's cases where I maybe will step back rarely now, maybe more, more when I was younger, Mm -hmm. because you do always need to be aware. And you want to be in a system where somebody can kind of tap you on the shoulder and, you know, be like, hey, wait, the reality is, it's not ever too much of a problem. I think as vets, you get very good at compartmentalizing, Mm -hmm. you're doing a professional role, and you act through that role, where it comes in would be more with vet wellness, I guess, you know, making sure that if it was a challenging emotional situation, you're giving yourself the space to process that in a different location. Because if you don't do that, if you're not monitoring your own wellness, that can catch up with you. You know, that's where you end up in trouble.
0: I m- imagine that sometimes you might, you must just lose an animal. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes you probably can't save them. What's that like?
2: It varies. So actually today uh, we examined an elderly knobtail gecko, gecko uh, and she has had a, a slower decline and the keepers brought it to our attention. And in evaluating her, she appears to have either cancer or some other internal problem. She's very, very anemic, has almost no red blood cells. Mm-hmm. And so today we're in the process of making that very, you know, decision that for this animal in this context, we're going to go ahead and euthanize her. You can see I'm getting all... We're going to go ahead and euthanize yeah. her. Um, and so as a vet, you, there's a piece of you that's like, I just want to try. You know, I just want to try. I just want to try the surgery. But she has no red cells. You know, we don't really have a good blood transfusion option. She's quite old. Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, it's not in her best interest. Yeah. She's, she's lived almost 10 years here, I think, which is pretty long, very long for that particular species. And, you know, just as you would with a pet, you sometimes make these decisions. It's, it's, it's not right. And so we're going to, we'll, we'll go ahead and we're working with the curator right now. So that's our, you know, that's our day. We jump in and out of this all the time.
0: You're listening to Lee Clayton, the National Aquarium's Director of Animal Health. In a moment, Clayton tells us about a memorable veterinary surgery.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. And now get $250 when you join RAMP for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Can you describe
0: the, your working area? Like, what does what the actual veterinary facility, surgery area, whatever it is, look like?
2: Yeah, so we actually do work throughout the building, uh-huh. which is one of the cool things about it. But
0: so You don't just have a dedicated medical day.
2: We don't, yeah. So, And we'll do a lot of things right where the animals are. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have a what we call our surgery, and it's really our hospital treatment room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a large room where we have all of our diagnostic equipment. X-ray, uh, X-ray blood testing. Uh, some of the blood testing. We've got an ultrasound machine there. Mm-hmm. Everything's on wheels so that we can move it around. Everything is small. Uh, The advantages of modern technology, you can get amazing computing power and teeny tiny devices. Uh, And that's because we often want to take it out and work with the animals. Um, And it's one big room and the equipment is all around the edges and you would walk in and recognize things like needles and syringes and gloves and alcohol and all of the stuff you would normally see at a clinic.
0: I assume though you also have lots more water
2: accessible to keep things moist in the We do, but we don't have it in our surgery area per se. Uh, The water comes with the animals. Uh, Um, and if the animals are of a sufficient size we go to the animal Mm -hmm. you know we do a lot of home visits (laughs) it tends to work better for everybody
0: (laughs) you are wearing what look like scrubs (laughs) yes is that is that your uniform it's my uniform or were you or were you just actually in surgery
2: (laughs) i was not actually doing surgery (laughs) 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 no but yeah this is my uniform but we do perform surgeries here
0: have there been any particularly memorable uh surgeries that you can tell us about
2: Yes. Let's see. One of the more memorable ones, in a different gecko species, we had one that had a very large mass. And this was many years ago now. You're you're pointing to your neck. I know, my neck. It it had a neck mass. Yes, it had a a ventral neck mass, a mass on the bottom part of its neck. And we ultrasounded it and aspirated it and couldn't quite figure out what it was and talked with the curator and the husbandry, you know, and we're like, that let's just go in and try. We don't know what it is. And it's obviously not normal. So let's just go in and try. So we went in and it was this big cystic structure. And we're like, it looks like it's where the thyroid would be. We've never heard about thyroid issues like this in a lizard. And we just sort of, oh, look, one of them popped out and we removed that. And then there was this other mass and it popped out. And so it had this bilobe thyroid with these huge cystic weird structures and uh, easy to get out. And we closed it back up and sent them off for histology and the gecko recovered and did really well but now it didn't have any thyroid so we started it on thyroid supplementation, just as you would with a I human. I am also on thyroid supplementation. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I, <laughs> there
0: you go. <laughs> I, had, I had my thyroid removed a few years ago. There so, you I, go. so I you relate can to this gecko, to the very, gecko. gecko. very much.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were like, well, we don't know what will happen, but let's just try. And we're using, you know, a medication that's made for humans. levothyroxine or something? Yes, exactly. <laughs> we have to crush it up. You're on it. And we're giving it to this gecko. And... Uh, Lo and behold, it does great. And we monitor its thyroid levels, not from blood levels, because A, we don't have normals, and (laughs) B, they're really hard to bleed. And so we just do it based on its heart rate and its shedding rate, because those are two things that the thyroid helps to control. And uh, experimenting for a while, we figured out what looked like, kept it most similar to the other geckos, and that's its dose. And she's still with us, and it's been I don't know, six, seven years, something like that. It's been a while.
0: I love it. How do you figure out what the right? How do you like titrate the right dose of a thyroid medicine for? Right. Because like I take a massive amount for some reason, three hundred <laughs> micrograms of this <laughs> of this thing, but. A gecko weighs a lot less than me. What is it? How how, how much levothyroxine do you give to a... So,
2: uh, yeah, I don't... uh, Basically, a couple of little drops. So this is a perfect example of how you're integrating all of this information. So I I don't have anything that can tell me what the dose is for a gecko. Uh I don't have anything that really can tell me what the dose is for a lizard or even a reptile. And so we usually start with a dose that works in dogs and cats. We typically go to dogs and cats first or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we look up the dose for cats or dogs and we go okay well that will start there so we get in the tablets the tablets we obviously can't give to the gecko because that would be a huge overdose so we crush the tablets up we mix it into a suspension and now the suspension has a set amount of migs per mil and we take the gecko's weight and we take our desired dosage and then we you know divide it by the concentration and we have the amount we're going to give the gecko and so we give it to the keepers and we say please give this to your gecko every day and it's something ridiculous i mean it's literally it's less than a drop if you're used to a drop from like a dropper for imeds it's less mm-hmm. than that by quite a bit and uh, we start there and we monitor how our gecko does and where the g- is the gecko up and active and eating does it seem overly hungry then maybe our dose is too high <laughs> does it seem not hungry enough maybe our dose is too low is the heart rate where it should be or is the heart rate too low? Is it shedding frequency appropriate for that species? And we just sort of went off of our knowledge of animals in general and then fine tuned it for this animal in particular. And we have to be careful because if she gets too heavy, we have to adjust the dose a little bit. That would be an
0: indication that it was too low.
2: It could be too low or they just, a new keeper came on and decided to feed her twice as often, mm-hmm. maybe. And then, so the keepers are great. They get weekly weights on her. And um, our veterinary interns, she's on, I think, her fourth veterinary intern. So they get her case, and they go up once a month, and they do a little physical, and they get her heart rate, and we double-check our doses fine, and we move on.
0: How late are you here at night?
2: It varies. So <laughs> some days we leave at 5 or 6, and other days we're here until 10 or
0: 12 are you are you ever like on call late at night is there are there times when when it's like i gotta get i gotta get back to the aquarium for a yes, shark emergency yeah exactly
2: <laughs> sometimes but that's really really infrequent uh-huh. honestly things work work i need to knock on wood uh, usually things go fine uh-huh. uh occasionally we'll have you know a, a rare case uh that we may be staying late for to monitor almost overnight but that's pretty infrequent for us we're mm-hmm. we're lucky that way
0: what happens when there is some kind of emergency in the middle of the day, or, mm-hmm. or whenever it is? How, yeah. how, what's the what's the kind of information flow there?
2: Yeah. So things obviously come up at all times, uh, and we rely on the radio as a primary way of communicating with people. And Do you we keep one on you. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yes. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talk to each other on the radio. is our primary way of reaching out instantly mm-hmm. to try to notify somebody that something has changed. Uh, And then if it has, we find a phone to have a more detailed conversation. Mm -hmm. So we're not, you know, on the radio (laughs) talking (laughs) about, you know, taking up five minutes of radio time. And very often we'll, you know, maybe grab some stuff and go up to where the emergency may be happening at other situations. We'll determine it's just easiest for the husbandry staff to bring the animals over to the surgery area and work with them there most of the time it's things that can be resolved just with a conversation or they're alerting us that something has changed and we'll go do maybe a physical exam and decide oh this one's okay we'll just get it on the schedule for you know we'll get an appointment for it basically mm-hmm. uh and so we kind of mimic what you might see in a 24-hour clinic we've got pieces of it that will do emergency care and it's like drop everything and go deal with that uh but more often it's you know okay well this has happened and now we need to get it an appointment mm-hmm. our appointments are usually in the morning between 9:30 and 11 uh, and so we try to keep animal procedures in the morning and leave the afternoon free for kind of rechecks and paperwork it almost never works out that way but <laughs> that's the goal is yeah. do all this stuff in the morning and then write up about it and read about it in the afternoon
0: is that stuff ever frustrating having to do the real practical parts of the job
2: No, no, I mean, I I look at it, I have a great team. So I have delegated parts of it. Um, But I look at it as, you know, that's the cost of doing business, right? You know, I'm part of a company, it's not just up to me, I've got accountants who need what they need to do their job well to support the organization. And so I just, I try to look at it kind of holistically. You know, when I say I need something, I like it when other people trust that I need that. And they just trust me enough to be like, okay, Dr. Clayton needs that. Here you go. And so I try to give my colleagues in the organization to say, all right, Megan in finance says she needs this. I'll do it because I don't understand finance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the National Aquarium's Lee Clayton. After this brief break, she talks about the educational component of her work. Baltimore has this major harbor and bay Mm -hmm. with water. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is is essential to, yep. to the city's identity, as I understand it. Um, does that connection uh, shape the work that you all do here?
2: I think it does. I think being part of the Chesapeake Bay is one of the neatest things about the aquarium here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've gotten more and more ability to sort of move into projects in this area. Because even within our own backyard, there's an immense amount we don't know uh, so, for instance, one of the projects we are looking to begin this summer with our rescue group is to get a better understanding of how sea turtles use the upper Chesapeake Bay. Oh, wow. We understand more about how they use the lower Chesapeake, kind of mm. down by Virginia, where it connects with the Atlantic. We know they come up, not necessarily into the Inner Harbor at this point, but fairly far up, certainly to the bridge. So how how are they here? What age classes are here what are they doing here? Uh, so we're looking forward to beginning some of that work.
0: Have you ever been in a position where you had to help a local animal that was in distress?
2: Yeah, so we do have an animal rescue group, um, and that's the other arm uh, that I work with. Uh, and so we work with the Department of Natural Resources uh, when you're doing in Maryland. in Maryland, when you're doing rescue work like that, when you're working with endangered species and sea turtles and marine mammals, uh, the permission to do that all comes from the federal government through mm-hmm. NOAA mm-hmm. Uh, for the marine mammals. Uh, and we're actually part of an amazing stranding network of facilities all up and down the coast. And our our regional one is is sort of from Virginia up through Maine. Uh, and so, yeah, we work with uh, sea turtles here. Uh, we work with sea turtles that may come in from our partner organization. So if they're full, And we have space, we'll help them out and take animals and vice versa. Uh, And we also do a lot of work with pinnipeds that way as well. Seals, sorry, seals. (laughs) (laughs) So we have um, a growing, the seal population as it's recovering is moving further and further south. And so we actually have a fair amount of harbor seals and gray seals um, off the Atlantic coastline. Uh, And those guys are starting to live here year-round. They used to just be seasonal visitors, and now they're overwintering here, and we've got a number of young of the year that sometimes get in trouble, and we try to give them a little bit of a helping hand.
0: And you said you work with terns as well, seabirds. So?
2: No, sea turtles. Sea, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, just we'll we that. haven't done the bird. <laughs> we sorry. don't do the birds at this point. <laughs> okay,
0: so I misunderstood earlier. Sorry. Uh, you wanted to throw something in? Yeah, yeah. Is there an especially memorable rescue case that you've been a part of? Is there an especially memorable rescue case that you've been a part of?
2: Yeah, I think one of our one of the more interesting ones uh, was a sea turtle that came in with a, a very old uh, wound on one of its flippers. It had fishing. Line wrapped Mm -hmm. around the upper limb, and uh, we made the decision that we couldn't spare the limb. Uh, And so we amputated the limb, and the turtle recovered very well. And in talking with the federal government, typically they would not have historically allowed an animal with just three flippers to be released. Mm -hmm. Um, But they'd been noting more and more that there were three limbed sea turtles that did seem to be surviving and um, you know from shark bites natural problems out in the wild and so we worked with them to make a determination to go ahead and try to release this animal and we put a a satellite tag on her that that was good for about 30 days maybe a little bit longer and documented that she was sort of seemed to be following the normal sea turtle path and seemed to be doing well at least for that time period so Mm -hmm. that was a neat one because we were Um, able to help her, but also able to work with the federal government to try something new. Uh, In general, our goal with these animals that come in uh, is to turn them around as long as we think they're going to have a good quality of life.
0: Has working here shaped your sense of Baltimore at all?
2: Yeah, I definitely think it has. I'm from Massachusetts, so I hadn't spent much time here. And uh, I think being at the aquarium, you see The the students come in and you see people come in and and you just sort of see how excited they get and how uh, you can get them to understand a little bit more about the natural world that they live in, just even right here in Maryland. Uh, And one of my favorite areas is our native habitat And, you know, we've got a stream exhibit that is mimicking a little stream that you might see out in the mountains, and we've got a marsh exhibit, and you sort of get this progression of where water goes from up in the mountains out to the ocean. Uh, And it's really, I do sometimes just like to sit there and kind of point out the bullfrog and the, the terrapin and the little turtles and see people get really excited about that and begin to get them to understand that this can be in their backyard if we start making, you know, They're challenging efforts, but begin to make those efforts to try to create a world where people and the non-human animals can all live together. And how do we how do we do this? Uh, Same with out here in the harbor. We've got actually a lot of animals out there. There's a lot of fish that live in there. And uh, it's fun to point those out. You'll be walking along and you can look down there. There's fish (laughs) in there. What? Oh, my God. People have no idea that this isn't they think it's just dead and it's not. It's alive.
0: Do you have any tips for uh, home aquarium keepers to keep their fish alive?
2: <laughs> Be re- take care of the water. <laughs> if you take care of the water well, and the water is healthy, your fish will often thrive. <laughs> so you have to think. You have to think like a step removed from the animal. You're thinking about its environment.
0: <laughs> what uh, What's the best way to to make sure the water is is <laughs> appropriately? Uh-
2: uh, do get your little water chemistry testing kit from uh, the pet shop or online and make sure that your, particularly your ammonia and your pH are trending where they should understand um, the needs of the fish that you're putting into your community tank talk with you know if you can get experts at the pet store or online now there's some good fish forums Uh Uh, and I would highly recommend planning it out ahead of time when you're (laughs) when you're working with animals you don't want to necessarily wing it winging it often doesn't work out well for the animals
0: (laughs) do you keep fish yourself at home
2: I don't actually I just have dogs (laughs) people ask me what the easiest animals are and I think "Mm, kind of dogs (laughs) maybe cats (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for taking the time You're to welcome. talk to us. Today. Well, thank this you was... for
2: coming in and seeing the aquarium as part of your Baltimore I'm visit. so delighted that we were able to. I learned so much. <laughs> thank you. Good. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers.
2: It's time for today's
1: Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.